Okay, friends, thank you, Greg, for doing our reading. And now let's dive in an alternative physics. So most of what we know, or thought we know about the universe, stems back to the 1600s, which is when Isaac Newton published his Principia Mathematica. And what this work did was showed that there was a rational mechanics to the way that objects move throughout our universe. So this was explained by his three famous laws of motion, and of course gravity, which among other things helpfully explains why our spinning planet doesn't like fling us out into space. And, and this was the greatest power of Newton's work, its explainability. Like we could see these theories at work around us and they explained so many phenomena that had seemed unexplainable previously. So they explained the movement of planets, the shape of the earth, the ebb and flow of tides. And then when people took them and applied them, it opened up whole new realms of possibility. The rise of calculus, the discovery of the planet Neptune, air travel, space travel, and eventually, of course, Einstein's theory of relativity. And in fact, Newton's laws explained so much of the scientific world that scientists and eventually the general public grew to have great confidence in this view of the universe as orderly, predictable, understandable, because as long as you crunch the right numbers, you could tell how big things were and you could tell um, even things as big as planets, exactly where they would be going both forwards and backwards in time. And that's all still true. It was very unsettling, therefore, when scientists were first able to study the components of atoms and found that none of the rules of classical physics seemed to apply at that level. Atoms, which are of course the building blocks of nature, of matter, they've long been thought to be the smallest thing in the universe, but then in the 1900s, we split them open and found that they're made up of smaller parts, parts you probably learned about in school, like the nucleus, protons, neutrons, electrons. And eventually we learned that these subatomic particles are themselves made up of sub-subatomic particles, which have been called quarks. And this, this is where physics really goes off the deep end because Newton's laws of motion, which had explained so much of how the universe works, seemed not to apply at all inside an atom. According to Newton's laws, atoms shouldn't even exist. Like the differing negative and positive forces should cause an atom to explode. So having discovered this, scientists set to work looking for theories and equations that would explain how things work on a subatomic level. And that's a, a quest that to a large extent they have succeeded at. And this is what is now known as the field of quantum physics. Unlike classical physics, in quantum physics, objects have no particular location in time and space, just a combination of probabilities. And objects are neither waves nor particles, but a strange combination of both. There are plenty of other crazy parts to quantum physics that go way beyond my ability to understand, let alone explain. Entanglement, the uncertainty principle, electromagnetism. Uh, but as counterintuitive as they seem to those of us grounded in classical physics, the predictive power of quantum physics uh, is just as strong as the classical physics, right? Um, and together they form this body of knowledge that is just as well tested and has just as much explanatory power as classical physics when it comes to describing how our world works. The problem is these two schools of thought, they seem to be utterly incompatible with each other. And how can one law, set of laws, govern one part of the universe and another govern the other? It doesn't make sense. So thus began the quest 
for a grand unifying theory to reconcile the two, and that is a quest that continues unresolved to this day. Okay, that's physics. Still with me? Good, because we're going to do some archaeology. Long before the prophet Jeremiah comes the invention of the wheel. Archaeologists have found wheels from as far back as 35,000 years before Common Era, but those first wheels, and for several centuries, wheels were not originally used for transportation. What were they used for? Pottery. Pottery. And I don't know if any of you have ever thrown pots on a wheel. Um, potter's wheels are electric now, of course, but the principle is the same. You put a lump of clay in the center of the wheel and you use your hands to shape it as it spins. And the spinning of the wheel allows you to make smooth, symmetrical shapes that you couldn't do by hand. So this is what God sends Jeremiah to witness in our scripture reading today, a potter throwing clay. And if you've done it before, you know it's a very delicate process. And if you make it too thin or you bump it or it gets even a little bit off-centered, you have to just smash the whole thing down and start over. And that's really common. It usually takes a lot of tries to get something right on a potter's wheel. So this reading, at first glance, is not particularly encouraging. Now, there's a reason they called Jeremiah the weeping prophet. Essentially, God is saying, here, O Israel, I can do to you what the potter did to this clay. Smash you, destroy you, turn from your evil ways, for even now I am shaping destruction against you. Hmm. That, that actually, that sounds pretty awful, to be honest. That sounds like a God of destruction who rules with fear. Uh, but context is everything, of course, so let's start there. And what you need to know is that Jeremiah, the storyline is written as if God is talking to Israel before the exile, before they get conquered by Babylon, and God warning them to shape up or else. But the words of Jeremiah were actually written during the exile. In other words, this text was written by people whose lives had just been turned upside down and were trying desperately to understand why. 587, when the temple was destroyed, it was a watershed moment, not just in Israel's political history, but also in its theology. And so what is fascinating is that in this particular passage, you can actually see people's understanding of God evolving right before our eyes. This time period during the exile this marked the beginnings of the emergence of monotheism. So you can't tell if you're listening, but the text introduction that Greg read includes the word God with a little g. And this is because prior to the exile, when Israelites talked about God, they meant their God. It's, scripture says it all the time, the God of Israel, which was one God among many. And the belief back then was that each nation had its own patron God. So whatever was happening with people and nations on the earth corresponded to what was happening with those gods up in the heavens. So if your country goes to war against my country, then somewhere up there your god is fighting my god, and if your country beats mine in battle, it means your god meet my god. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to stop worshiping my god and start worshiping yours, because clearly yours is stronger, and so I want to throw in my lot with the strongest god. This happened all the time in the ancient Near East. Countries were always fighting. People were always switching 
allegiances of who they worship based on how those fights turned out. So in light of that, what is so remarkable about scriptures like Jeremiah and others from this period is that you can see people's thinking starting to shift. They don't jump right to monotheism, right? They're still thinking here of multiple gods, but they start to think that there may be there's more to what the gods do than just fighting and winning and losing. And maybe, maybe when bad things happen, that doesn't necessarily mean that God is vanquished. Maybe, just maybe, God is actually still present with us in our trials. And not just present, but actually able to use our trials, our faults, our failures to bring about a blessing, to redeem them and to redeem us. Okay, what does that sound like? Can you hear the very beginnings of a theology of the cross in all of that? It was the time in exile where people were wrestling with where God was in all of that. That time period, that's what gave people centuries later the theological imagination that allowed them to look at Jesus, this revolutionary rabbi who was executed by the state, and instead see in him a potential savior of the world. So what, what the world saw as dead and defeat, people could see and imagine that maybe this was just the beginning, was not a dead end, but actually our promise of victory over sin and death for everyone forever. Now, they're not here that they're not there yet, right? Like they're not there yet in this passage. Um, not even close. Um, what they're saying essentially is that maybe the reason the exile happened, maybe the reason our nation fell and our temple was destroyed is not because our God was weak and got beaten. Maybe God let this happen to us or even orchestrated this happening to us because we had gone astray. That probably still doesn't sound quite right to us, that kind of thinking, and it shouldn't. Um, we do not believe anymore that God ever causes harm on purpose. God does not inflict us with tragedies to teach us a lesson. God is not about destruction, at least not of people or nations. Uh, but at the time, this was a big leap. This was the first inkling that maybe when we talk about God, maybe we're not just talking about violence and power. Maybe we're talking about something else, something bigger, something deeper. Maybe our times of trial can actually be times of blessing. And maybe, maybe when all seems lost, God's not actually gone, but just rolling up their sleeves and about to do a new thing. Now, think back to classical and quantum physics for a minute. Two sets of rules for how the world works, both seeming to explain a lot, but each seemingly incompatible with the other. Now, think about what we see when we look out at our world, what people in Jeremiah's world saw, people conquered and living in exile. Because what we see is, we see a world where there's never enough. There's never enough land or resources for everyone. Um, it's eat or be eaten, it's a zero-sum game, and a gain for you is always a loss for me. The more money you have, the more money you can make, and so just grab what you can because Sure, it would be nice if everyone could have what they needed, but if someone has to go without, I don't want it to be my kid. So first you look out for you and yours, and then if there's extra, then you can share some. 
power, wealth. This is what keeps us safe. That's what we see around us and let's be real, that is real. That is how our world works in a lot of ways and if we don't play by those rules, we do get taken advantage of, pushed out and left behind. That's all true. But it is not the only truth. When we read our Gospels, Jesus takes this holy thought experiment that began during the exile and brings it to fruition first with his teachings and then with his own death and resurrection. The way of Jesus is like an alternative physics or the last will be first, the first will be last, the greatest are least, the least are greatest, those who try to save their lives will lose them and those who give up their lives are saved. True power is not in ruling over others but in serving others. True wealth is measured not by how much you have but how much you give away. Death is not the ending but just the beginning. Our weaknesses become our strength. Our greatest trials become the sources of our greatest blessings and it all happens not by our own efforts at all but by a God who is unearned and unlimited grace and mercy and love. Friends, these laws are also true. And our faith goes one step further and makes the bold and hopeful claim that not only are these laws equally true, but they're actually more true. They're eternally true. And so, in these laws of love and in the Savior who taught them to us, we put our trust and attempt to live our lives. You know, it's funny. In pot throwing, you start by slamming the clay down on the wheel, which makes it a little intimidating as a metaphor for the life of faith. But once you get going, um, the first thing you have to do is center the clay. There's a lot of ways that pot throwing can go wrong, but that's the most common is to get off center. And when you do even a little bit, the whole creation gets distorted and you have to begin again. So friends, may we begin again today and every day. May our understanding of our world and our God continue to evolve. May we center ourselves on the alternative physics of Jesus and his way so that even as we shift and change, we can keep our balance, we can keep our symmetry, we can stay centered in the hands of a God who makes all things new. Amen. Lots to think about in there, and so as we think, we sing and we praise God of grace and God of glory.